Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, I'm joined by co-host Corinne Lytle-Bonine, and we feature Mikey Nabb, Director of Policy at Climate Action Campaign. Mikey is a values-driven professional with over 15 years of leadership-level experience in both nonprofit organizations and for-profit companies. He's skilled at building teams, program and operation management, policy advocacy, strategic communication, and fundraising. Mikey started working as a dishwasher when he was 15 years old. He worked his way up through all positions in restaurants and eventually working as director of operations for the Meza Family Restaurant Group, which he helped expand from one small unit in the Kensington neighborhood of San Diego to three units. Under Mikey's leadership, these units became certified surf rider ocean-friendly restaurants, California State Senate Small Business of the Year award recipients, plastic-free and zero-waste champions, and San Diego Workforce Partnership Employer of the Year winners. Mikey believes in an equitable and just world where all can thrive, and that is not possible without bold action to address the climate crisis, as you'll hear about shortly. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Jessa. Hi, I'm Corinne. And today's guest is Mikey Nabb, Director of Policy at the Climate Action Campaign. Welcome, Mikey. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for joining. So first things first, how are you connected to AEP? Uh, well, I'm connected to, to AEP through this podcast. Uh, I, I actually know you, Jessa, from some uh, volunteer work that we do together in San Diego, where I'm from, and to Corinne through a mutual friend named Andrea. Uh, and I have actually listened to a couple episodes of the podcast. They were shared with me from folks far and wide. Uh, so I have heard some of what you all do, uh, but otherwise that's the extent of the connection. Great. That's perfect. That means the podcast is working. <laughs> okay, Mikey. So you're director of policy. Um, and I know you're very passionate and involved in a lot of different issues, but as far as your career goes, um, I know this is a very broad question, but what led you to a career within the environmental profession or what attracted you to that? This answer could be very, very long. So I'm just going to give like the slightly abridged version. And if it feels too long at some point, just do the little uh, like this sign on the <laughs> on, on Zoom and I'll stop. I For those who are just listening, I just said like, cut it off, buddy. Um, so essentially, uh, well, I'm 42 years old. So I've been, but I've been working since I was, well, 12. I, my first job was at my best friend's mom's plant nursery in LA where we would carry out um, pots and fertilizer bags to people's cars and get like tips. And that's how I would pay for comic books. But right after that, uh, at 15, when I got a real work permit, I started as a dishwasher uh, at a restaurant. And then I worked every single job in the kitchen, what we call the back of the house, until I found out I was bad at all of them. And they kicked me out to the front of the house, which is what we call the dining room. Uh, and then I did every job there is there. I was a host, a busser, a runner, a server, a bar back, a bartender, a manager. And then eventually I owned some restaurants. So over the course of that time, I was doing some other things other than working. Uh, I went to school. I, I paid for college by waiting tables and bartending. Um, and I studied cultural theory uh, while I was at school. The whole time I didn't realize this, but I was kind of developing the things I cared about most. And I think that's just kind of like what we all do as we're growing as humans and professionals. And what, what I learned is I cared the most about uh, working people and, and sort of 
justice in pr professional approaches and 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 the the working world that we unfortunately find ourselves in sometimes. Um, the other one is climate and the effects of our decisions on the natural world and the quality of life for working people. And then as I got a little closer to now, like a little older and through the professional pathway a little bit more, I realized that the other one was small business. And so uh, as a person who has run restaurants and owned a couple of restaurants, um, people who want to do it right are at a competitive disadvantage. And that really hits when you think about climate and working people. So folks who run restaurants that want to be really sustainable and, and maybe they didn't study climate policy. In fact, almost none of them did, uh, but it's hard to do it. It's expensive to do it. And it's difficult to sell something for a higher price and expect your customers to think that's worth it because they have solar on the roof. Um, even harder to say the dishwasher at my restaurant has healthcare, family leave and makes a living wage. So you should pay twice as much for your sandwich as you would down the street. That's a tough one. Uh, and so as I started, not started, as I continued working, uh, running restaurants and sort of being an incurably curious person, I, I started engaging in political conversations or policy conversations or advocacy and strategy conversations about how we can solve for this competitive disadvantage problem and really move the force of business, in my case, it was restaurants, to do things that are good while also doing things that help them meet their profit motive. Um, and through that work, I realized that you can't do it one shop at a time. Like I, I'm very impressed by the workers at Starbucks in unionizing each cafe one at a time. But imagine if Starbucks just made it corporate policy that they were going to allow unions in their whole company. That is a policy that would make an incredible impactful difference on the lives of thousands and thousands, probably, I don't know how many employees Starbucks has, but hundreds of thousands, I think. And that's the case with basically everything. So in restaurants, the minimum wage was my big one. In 43 states and DC, which also should be a state, by the way, they are allowed to pay a sub-minimum wage to tipped workers, which can be as low as $2.13 an hour. It leads to the restaurant industry being the number one industry for sexual harassment in the country, even more than the military. It means that the, um, the workforce in the restaurant industry, which are disproportionately women and people of color, are susceptible to customer whims at an alarming rate. Um, and so that's a policy change that we need to enact. It's the same for climate stuff. So what I realized through that business work is if I wanted to not use styrofoam takeout containers uh, or not throw organic waste in the landfill because that creates methane emissions and exacerbates the climate crisis, I had to find very expensive solutions to that, which once again made my menu more expensive than everyone else's. So we needed policy change. So here in San Diego, where I live and um, some of the restaurants that I've run in the past exist, uh, I advocated for the city to ban the sale 
and distribution of extended polystyrene, along with many coalition partners. It's not like I did this on my own. You can never do anything on your own. Um, it takes a lot of people because the other side has money and our side has people. And the scales are very easy to tip with a bunch of dollars. Um, but to keep people engaged, you have to be able to paint a vision and articulate a vision for a more equitable and enjoyable, safe, secure future. That was my abridged version because that's what led me to leaving the restaurant industry and working in policy full-time because I was doing my best as a volunteer advocate, business owner, voice of business for good, right? That's what we were trying to get across to policymakers. And I realized that even at that, it wasn't enough. And if I really wanted to make even more difference, not enough, because once again, I can't do it on my own. I can't do it. Even my organization that I work for now, we are mighty and we have a bunch of really creative, talented advocates that work here. We can't do it on our own. It's all, it's going to take a lot more people. So I took my um, unavoidable for comment self and went from my, my business life to my policy life that happened about two and a half years ago, and the transition was complete about a year ago. I hope that was not too long. No, I'm impressed. That was very clear, easy to follow, and succinct, given that you condensed I what I think you did the math for us, 30 years into maybe five minutes. So... <laughs> what can I say? A lot more, and let's find <laughs> out. So if you... Uh, so with your role now, okay, so if I'm understanding this, that you wanted to do more and you're like, well, at some point, this is a lot of time and energy and I really want to devote my career to this. And so you got in for, more formally, I guess, into the profession so you could dedicate more time and energy and help drive for these initiatives you care about. And Coming from the, I, I think it's an interesting jump. I mean, obviously you have a lot of leadership experience and when you started get in, getting into policies, like how did you get into like promoting policy or advocating for policy? Like what took, how did you take that step? Cause I'm assuming that's eventually what led to your career now, which is, you know, much different, I assume than managing or, or running a restaurant. Yeah, it was honestly on accident. Um, 10-ish, maybe 12 years ago, somebody asked me to be a board member of our business improvement district where my restaurant is, my, my former restaurant is. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds cool. I'll do that. And I was going to these meetings. And um, one of the nice things that happens at those meetings is, at least here in San Diego, locally elected officials will send representatives, community relation representatives from their office to give updates to the board of the business improvement district and to hear from members of that board well what would your the businesses in your district like for us to focus on uh, that's actually to be honest i'll just take a second to say that is transparency and good outreach from government and we are the beneficiaries of some pretty decent elected officials when it comes to that type of outreach here in San Diego. So I just wanna say um, kudos to those who have committed in that way. So I just kind of had got, got to know these people and, and I was once again, incurably curious. And as I mentioned, I, 
I studied cultural theory at school at UCSD, which is why I moved to San Diego in the first place. And by the way, hack for anybody who's like in the time where they're trying to decide what to study in college, cultural theory is pretty cool because the, the truth is you can study whatever you want and call it cultural theory. What I decided I wanted to study was social movements. Um, so it was like a little, like half literature and half like activism. Uh, so as I'm in these board meetings, I'm sort of like, wow, I'm, I'm a little bit like more civically engaged here. This is kind of like scratching an itch that I didn't realize was bothering me. And then it just kind of like kept going and be, creating those relationships, which by the way, is what all policy is built on is relationships, human relationships, understanding how it affects people's lives where they are. Um, but they mattered. And so at some point when someone from a city council office said, Mikey, we are considering a minimum wage increase at city council, but business is opposed to it. But you run a business that's popular and we know how you feel about this. Would you be like part of the coalition to push for this change? And I said, who, me? And so, of course, I was like, yeah, I will. Of course. Yeah, let's do it. So, uh, you know what? It happened. And now the minimum wage in San Diego is uh, like 16 something an hour. It's still, to be honest with you, it's, yeah, it's still not a living wage here, um, but it is much, much better than most of the country. Um, and then I got a taste for it, right? So you got to like, if you can, if you're trying to get someone engaged in policy, come up with something that you know you're going to win and ask them to help with it first because that's what like I was a convert for life I didn't realize it at that time but I thought wow what an incredible amount of impact we all just had this group of people that like worked for something that will matter to the future of working people in San Diego basically forever because no one's ever turning a minimum wage increase back that's like never going to happen so that was how I did it go ahead Kind of along those lines, and I, I know, you know, both personally and professionally, I can, I have a tendency to get a little pessimistic about, um, you know, our future and, and not doing a lot or nearly enough on climate. Do you see any kind of, of those low-hanging fruits that, you know, can give us an easy win in the next, you know, couple of years, whether it's locally or statewide or even nationally? Wonderful question. You're teeing it up. Okay, so... <laughs> It depends on where you are. Um, I will speak to California because that's where we are. Um, but uh, this is probably analogous in quite a few other places in the country and maybe even in the world. This is, I'll test out this message on you two and you can tell me what you think. In the United States, the federal government has given us a clear choice. There are only two options and the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law and in California, Governor Newsom's budget from 2022 have given us a clear message. There are only two choices. Be part of the transition to the clean green economy of the future or be left behind. Be one of those steel towns from the early 20th century that never evolved and went bankrupt in the 90s and early 2000s. There, are, It's not the people who live in those cities fault that that happened. It is lack of vision and lack of leadership up, that led to them not being able to change, evolve, and adjust to an industry that was also changing. Low-hanging fruit right now is billions of dollars 
in investment for policy programs or, or climate policies and programs that would really benefit from regional leadership being ready to say how they're going to leverage that money in a way that impacts the quality of life for people now and fixes the future for lack of a better way of saying it. Now, what are those policies? What's the like shopping list? Building electrification is a huge one. I mean, if we can build in California, we have a commitment to a hundred percent our net zero carbon emissions by I think carbon new scoping plan is 2045. <laughs> uh, but we're getting there faster than we thought. So they moved the deadline up, which is great. And we can get a hundred percent renewable energy in California very soon. In, in my optimistic hat on. Now, if we have that, why would we be powering our buildings with fossil fuels? Why would be we be heating and cooling the space or our or our water or our food with a stovetop? So appliance standards are one. Building electrification is another. Incentivizing uh, decentralized uh, distribu distributed energy resources like community solar. Um, those are all, I think, low-hanging fruit in California right now. But it's going to take local leadership to get them over the finish line. Uncle Gavin can't do it at every city. Uh, so those are some. I'm going to go for like a little higher hanging fruit just because I personally care most about some of, not care most, I should say like, it would feel really good for an empathy monster like me if we could sell the vision and articulate the vision of how much benefit you get when you invest in public transit and walkable, bikeable neighborhoods with shade trees and shared green spaces and affordable housing near jobs and transit. I, I had the pleasure of speaking to this woman named Sister Maria Mohammed, who runs an organization here in San Diego. Uh, about what a climate smart future would look like, what it would mean to her personally. And she gave me a really big light bulb moment when she said, well, Mikey, for me, it means my kids have a safer time. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? Say more about that. And she says, well, right now I live in a neighborhood that is heavily policed. My, my children are black. I'm worried that they will be racially profiled and that is a danger to their life and safety. But in the future that we've articulated as a, as a movement, there are walkable, bikeable neighborhoods where people take the bus and there are shared park spaces and green spaces and we see each other as humans and we're less likely to be stressed out about rent because our cost of living has gone down because we're not spending so much money on a car and insurance for that car and gas and parking and registration. That's not to mention everything I work on in terms of like worker equity, but we're also not stressed about heat waves and wildfires and droughts and sea level rise and all those other horrible things that happen because of our climate crisis. And so when my children go outside and play and let's say a soccer ball hits someone's car that's parked in their driveway or on the side of the street, they're less likely to call the police and more likely to say, hey, I know you. Um, be careful, please. Like that, and that's the end result of all of it. So to me, I know that that was like, I went way out over on a limb here, but that's the kind of like real tangible, like hits you in the heart benefit of not spending money on widening freeways, not allowing sprawl development, but 
really investing in our communities in climate smart ways that account for historical inequity. So that to me, those are the types of policies that I believe are lower hanging than we might think. There is a heavy, heavy hand pushing on the other side of it. That's all that money I mentioned, the fossil fuel industry, uh, the, the automobile industry. Um, but I think people are more important than money and we can, we can get there if we like get the story right. Yeah. And I'll go one step further, Mikey. And, you know, like kind of a passion project of mine is that it's completely insane that we charge people to use public transit, but then let people drive all over the streets for free. And it's just such an inversion of what our values could and should be. Well, that's an interesting, technically we don't let people drive on the streets for free because they pay a gas tax. So unless you're in an electric vehicle where now you're a free rider, um, and by the way, the state's going to have a road use charge. Like we, like that's going to happen. So Good. I hope that they, they like kick it up multiple notches so that the money collected from those road use charges and the gas tax that you see, this road was built by SB1 funds, right? Like I don't want to see another road built by SB1 funds. What I'd like to see are protected, connected bike networks. What I'd like to see is frequent, uh, frequent, reliable, convenient, affordable, safe, and clean public transit. What I'd like to see is the high-speed rail that I voted to approve like 50 times in my life. Uh, that, that's where that money should go because in the, at the end of the day, nobody likes to be in traffic. People think that cars equal freedom because that's what the automobile industry sold us. And it's even to the point where it's, it, we don't see each other when we're in our cars to, to Sister Maria's point, like you're behind a you're behind glass and steel. So, but also you did mention paying for public transit, which is like this big, it, huge issue right now. All of the public transit agencies throughout the state and the country are about to run out of money or be at a deficit because federal ARPA funds that were supporting them or COVID relief funds that were supporting their operations are about to run out. So they, they have to consider, like, what do we do? Do we raise fares, which, by the way, would probably have a deleterious effect on the amount of people that take transit? Or do we reduce services, which Ahem, will also have a deleterious <laughs> effect on ridership. So what's the answer? And that's why when I first said like this medium hanging fruit was about the investment in these things. Like we have to come back to the table of if we are a society of laws and we've agreed to live under a constitution federally and, and even like wherever you live, a city charter, probably you might have a regional transit authority, like where we are in San Diego, we have SANDAG, right? San Diego Associated Governments. They have agreed that certain things are not allowed and certain things are allowed. And when we collect your taxes, we're going to spend it on some stuff like schools, police, all these other things that are considered social benefits. Well, filling potholes is the metaphor that everyone uses for intellectually lazy voters who just want a mayor who will keep their roads nice, right? We got to get rid of that as the, as the default mode because the real social benefit of living in a society like that where we've agreed to be governed by rules and laws is what benefits the society as a whole. Right. Like what makes it so that like right now in California, homelessness and not just California, but 
definitely in California, homelessness is like the number one issue on everyone's mind, particularly in cities. Why is that? What, what did we not invest in to make it such that the, the floor of living in California is so low that people, that there are thousands and thousands of people living on the streets. In my opinion, just flipping the, the approach would get us clean climate policy. Like saying, it's best to make sure that no one falls through the net safety net like that. And that will lead you to saying, then we need better public transit. We need more park space. We need more affordable, dense housing, near jobs and transit, all that stuff I outlined before. I saw something, and don't worry, I didn't read it, <laughs> but um, Senator Feinstein was introducing a bill to look into the root cause of homelessness and what in California and what is what's causing it. I mean, so I don't know where that bill's at. That's what I'm saying. I didn't read it. I was looking at our webpage for something else. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I should read it. Um, and I will and report back. But uh, I think, you know, I think as you're, it's interesting. I have like so many comments because you think so big and I love it. And it it is, it's such a, a systematic, there's so many systemic, uh, systemic issues, right? That you're talking about. And for me, homelessness is one of, it's something that I am um, very interested in. And it's, it's also environmental, it's safety. It's, it, there's so many things woven into that problem. And same with like what you're talking about with climate issues, climate issues impact public health, all these other factors. And um, it's interesting that that issue you're talking about, like the quote, big hanging fruit, which is the high hanging fruit is uh, the community and the individualism that we have as a society. Um, I think it's just, I'm just reflecting a lot on what you said and, and thinking about it. I think I haven't heard that point of view before and I, that really resonates. Um, and one thing I just wanted to touch on too, that you said we had um, the Secretary of Transportation for California, Tokes Omashaken on the podcast last year. And one of the takeaways that I remember from that is he said, California will not, widen freeways. He's like, there's just, besides the, the climate factors, he's like, there's also just nowhere else to build. And so I think California, we've become a model, whether people like it or not, for so many other states to follow, because it, there is a point where regardless of if you're for or against it, like there's only so many ways to build. Um, and so it just is going to have to be a problem to be solved. So I was just thinking about that when we were talking about like, that's not, that's definitely not the answer. And at least at the state level, um, they're acknowledging that too, which I think is hopeful. I'm hopeful about it. I mean, I think your listeners will be familiar with the term induced demand, um, which just basically means that the more freeway lanes or road lanes you build, the more people will find it the most convenient option to be on the road. So you get a benefit for the first six months of having an extra lane. And then suddenly all you've done is added more traffic and more greenhouse gas emissions, more air pollution. Um, but induced demand works in the other way too. So if you build high-speed rail, that's convenient, safe, fun, affordable, uh, people will go on it. And you've seen, probably you two have seen the photos of like, this is how much space 50 people in cars take up. And this is how much space people, 50 people in a bus take up. 
and of course it's like one one bus right so that takes up the space of like six or eight cars or whatever otherwise it's 50 cars so you're never in traffic right you are traffic so if we induce the demand for public transit for bikeable biking walking um it will happen i mean i i really do believe that because i've been to i lived in england uh, where the transit is not perfect, but it's a lot better than where I live. Uh, I've been to Japan a bunch of times and the transit there is incredible. Um, and I've also been to places that don't need public transit because everything's in walking distance. Um, so I, I do believe that there's, you don't need more space to build. You need more space in your head to be creative about what you build. So for me, and I mentioned before we started recording, but like my goal right now this year is to make being involved in climate action fun. So, and that doesn't mean like in my organization that's called Climate Action Pan Campaign where I work. I mean, just like for people, like Greta Thunberg's incredible and I think she's so inspirational and there are a lot of people in that space who are in, inspiring other folks to act and get righteously angry and that's necessary. But we need like a, we, we need a, like a like a fozzy bear version of that too that's like or like someone who whoever it was when you were in college or high school that like if they had a party you did not want to miss that party because you would have fomo so bad and that's what i want climate action to feel like like oh my gosh if my if my region does not get their stuff together and apply for these ira funds we're going to be left behind but if we get them What's that going to mean? It means like all that stuff. I it's going to be cool. Like we're going to be an innovation hub. We are going to be part of the creative way of solving one of the most existential problems that humanity has ever faced. And by the way, created ourselves. So like, imagine being part of the movement to get over and through that and into some beautiful future. Like that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is that what you're working on in your current position? Is that part of your job or is that more of a, a personal mission related to your profession? <laughs> it's both. Uh, like I think I mentioned before, I have, there are five advocates that work in San Diego and two in Orange County. Um, they have very specific wonky technical research oriented strategic advocacy to do with both community members, coalition partners, politically elected officials. Um, they do watchdogging. We write a lot of memos and white papers and policy position papers, and we give a lot of public comment. We think that that is fun, but we are nerds. So, and uh, Corinne also gave me permission to use that term earlier. So I will say <laughs> we are nerds. Not everybody's a nerd. So like I have had this conversation a lot in the last six months with my team, which is like, we really want this to be fun. We It can't just be, um, don't look up. It can't just be like screaming at the sky about how bad it is and how like insane and ridiculous it is that people aren't meeting the moment and acting with urgency. That is necessary, but lots of people are doing that. So. We want to have a party and we talk about that all the time. And sometimes it's inappropriate to do the fun part and we can engage in the very sort of somber and serious technical elements as well. And we do that, but whenever given an opportunity, there's going to be a cookout and yes, so that is part of my job. And I believe that it is when we've been successful at it, it is actually useful and impactful. 
maybe shifting gears a little bit as the resident secret nerd, which we all agree we can use on this podcast. Um, a lot of what we hear, um, especially from naysayers, is that the you know California Environmental Quality Act and needing to comply with that get in the way of some of these larger things like high-speed rail, like infrastructure improvements, um, you know, enhanced public transportation, home, you know, housing solutions, um, you know, all of that. And we've seen a lot of progress in things like what you mentioned, SB 743, which you know, completely turned on its head how you look at traffic impacts, having it no longer be that are you sitting in traffic and that's an impact to um, looking at vehicle miles traveled and how you can reduce that. Um, and, you know, a local example here in San Diego, I think for the plastic bag ban citywide, and then even when the city was working up to the styrofoam uh, ban, I think before it became a, a state level um, initiative, um, there was concern, and, and I think for the plastic bag ban in particular, that there was going to be a CEQA challenge that completely slowed down the implementation of banning plastic bags. In your experience, and again, because we're the Association of Environmental Professionals, have you, you know, had anything um, either thwarted by or slowed down or, or experienced running into CEQA with things that you were trying to implement? This is a good question. And you referred to something that has like a personal interest to me because that styrofoam ban in San Diego, I like helped make that happen when I was running restaurants. And and we it, we won the policy. We got it over the finish line where council members actually staffed it. Like they wrote the policy from the council offices rather than the mayor's staff, which is typically city, city staff and administrative departments typically write policy. But in San Diego, we did a thing different, we, you know, and, and that means people worked really hard on it, right? We were so happy. It was my biggest win since the minimum wage thing, right? So like, cool. And then this really sort of uh, like boringly named organization that you wouldn't think had very much influence or power filed a CEQA challenge to the styrofoam ban and that is the california restaurant association the cra which is a subsidiary of the national restaurant association we call them the other nra <laughs> um, unfortunately very influential and unfortunately like not super transparent about their motives uh so they used sequa as a way to say well banning the sale and distribution of extended polystyrene or styrofoam to use the corporate name might have an, a negative environmental impact <clears throat> and the city didn't go through the proper EIR. So it took another three years from the time the policy was adopted at the city council level to now, which like only a few weeks ago, it finally was like the EIR was finished and it was adopted and now will be implemented. So, you know, great that it happened. Great that we found out it's actually not a bad thing for the environment to ban styrofoam. But CEQA made it really difficult to make progress happen fast. That being said, CEQA is the only and best tool that environmental advocates have to challenge bad faith actors in the state as well. And I'll just be fully transparent, Climate Action Campaign sued the city of San Diego over their recent 2022 climate action plan because we don't believe that it's CEQA qualified. 
Um, so that is ongoing litigation. I can't speak too much on the details of it. That was not a decision that was made lightly. We are not the California Restaurant Association. We are not just doing this for messaging. What we want to see is really actually good climate policy implemented, not just adopted. Um, because what we've seen in many cases throughout the state is a lot of policies, well-intentioned policies, will get adopted. They will get a lot of um, recognition headlines and people will celebrate, rightly so, like I did when the when the styrofoam ban went, I thought was going to go into place, but then they don't get implemented, right? And they'll set goals that they go, you know, 50%, 70%, 90% unrealized. And at that point, you're not holding yourself accountable. You don't have benchmarks and milestones on progress, which CEQA requires for a GHG mitigation cap, climate action plan for a city or a county, any jurisdiction. I'm getting long-winded again. Um, so CEQA has its upsides because I do believe that lawsuits like the one that we filed may yield better results in terms of implementing the climate strategies that are in that cap. By the way, I think the 2022 San Diego cap is really good if implemented. So I just wanna make that clear. Um, so great, that's an upside for CEQA. There is a downside, it can be weaponized. I wish that there were ways to mitigate the opportunities for weaponization. And I don't just wish, I think there are ways to do that. And I do believe that quite a lot of very smart people are working towards that. In fact, one of the episodes of this podcast that I listened to was on that very subject. What I don't think is the right way is to repeal CEQA. I think reforming CEQA is a good and worthy exercise. And also it is middle or low hanging fruit. I do think there's appetite for it, but it's gonna be very difficult to get it right. So that's, it, it's the same thing as like NEM 3.0 at the CPUC. <laughs> Well-intentioned people had arguments about equity. And then they ended up with this really terrible policy, in my opinion, terrible policy that disincentivizes rooftop and community solar and sets us like many years behind on our GHG uh, mitigation and reduction goals. The intentions were there, but the powerful, entrenched system, systemic, systemic power structure is always going to see an opportunity and try their best to take it. So in CEQA reform, we need to be very careful about what we end up with on the other side of that process. I mean, preach, you're taking me to church right now, Mikey. So I <laughs> okay. Woo is it, <laughs> is it Easter Monday? That's what my calendar told me. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up. We're about at time anyway, and mic drop um, that. I'm just kicking my heels back. Um, not literally, but I could just listening <laughs> to you and I'm just amazed. It's it's so incredible to hear you talk about all these different issues and how they're woven together and the impact. So um, if there's nothing else, um, if there's anything else we want to talk about before we get into the wrap up rapid five, um, you give you the floor, but otherwise we can close out. I'm ready. Are yeah. you going to do the Ezra Klein thing and ask me three books I recommend? 
Um, That's not it. It's five different questions. It's the wrap up rapid five. Oh, okay, um, cool. <laughs> but right. if you have three books off the top of your head that you'd recommend, um, not only uh, am I an avid reader, but we're actually looking at bringing an AEP book club statewide. So uh, oh, I'm wow. you on the spot, but if you're offering, we'll, we will definitely take three recommendations. <laughs> okay. I'll try to do three like currently relevant and like slightly related to the things I've talked about today. Um, so I really like the sum of us by Heather McGee. I think it was like prescient and of a moment. And she is like one of the smartest humans to ever grace the rest of us with her presence. So the sum of us really, really impactful, incredible book. Um, Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty is good if you're like really nerdy about economics. Um, I am that. So like, there you go. I like that one. Third book. Okay. This will be less like relevant to the wonky stuff that we've talked about and more, um, worth your time if you just need a little bit of escape, but it is related and it is a little bit heavy, which is, um, Parable of the Sower. Uh, and that's Octavia Butler. Um, she was the coolest, like, turning sci-fi into real life stuff, turning like fantasy into real life stuff and like weaving in like really heavy emotional storylines into something that could sort of um, get you to a policy position. And so that's like so kind of the sort of stuff I used to like to read in college and, and I still return to quite a lot. Awesome, thank you. And I, I love The Sum of Us, so I'll have to check out the other two as well. Cool. Thank you for sharing. I could get some ideas for that book club going already. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wrap up rapid five. What is your favorite daily habit? Skincare. Oh. <laughs> what are three things you'd bring to a deserted island? Uh, my partner, uh, a bag of books, and chocolate. What is your favorite environmental policy? Uh, right now, I'm excited about the potential for regional collaboration on climate policies that could be incentivized through state and federal funding opportunities. What is your favorite flora or fauna? This one's hard. My favorite animal is a narwhal. Does that count as fauna? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know if scientifically, but for the podcast, yes. <laughs> Narwhals. They seem magic. I play Dungeons and Dragons. They don't seem like they should be like real animals, but they are. So um, it makes me think that fantasy is like a little more like our real life than it could be. And then the last question, which I think is interesting because before we even started recording, you actually answered this and I don't know if you realized it, but finish this sentence. Wouldn't it be cool if... Wait, what did I say before? You said, <laughs> how cool would it be if the broad... I actually wrote this down. How cool would it be if the broad public were in where we're into the public moving away from the status quo for climate oh. change. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty similar to what I prepared here. So uh, wouldn't it be cool if neighborhoods were walkable, bikeable, affordable, safe, and fun? If we saw more value in shared societal experiences and focused less on competition and individualism. Wouldn't that be cool? It would be very cool. Thank you for working on it. I appreciate it. Thank you both for doing, I mean, the the amplification of the voices that you all are engaged in is, is important, is an important part. And I appreciate it. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org.